Welcome, fiends, to Handle with Scare, presented by the Slash Incast Podcast Network. Our show discusses horror movies and the phobias they emphasize. And tonight, we are continuing our Selenophobia deep dive as we take a look at the fear of the mood in horror movies. Uh, so we are on to our third werewolf feature of the month so far. Uh, but before I introduce you to my co-host, just a few general minders. You can join us every Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. Pacific time for Twisted Tuesday. And of course, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Pacific time for our live recordings at kick.com slash drunk. And uh, of course, I am your host, Thrumly Drunk, and joining me tonight, as always, is my co-host, Grindhouse Zombie. And uh, Zombie, you know, pretty quick turnaround since our last show. You know, we are uh, back on schedule, a day removed from Twisted Tuesday. And, uh, you know, this quick turnaround here is honestly just as quick as the book that tonight's film is based off of, as it is, uh, you know, Kane's shortest work uh, to date. Uh, you know, outside of Carrie, uh, which would probably be the second closest one. Uh, but, you know, you're here to bring in your exp- expertise on all things Stephen King. So, uh, you know, always great to have you on anytime we get to do one of these adaptations of his work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So Silver Bullet based on his novelette, it's off, often called. Uh, I think it was 118 pages. I, I dug through my shit somewhere. I have a copy of this thing and I could not for the life of me find it tonight. I thought it would be fun to have here, but um, yeah, 118 page novelette, fully illustrated Um, as a kid. um, It was my second favorite illustrated book next to Creepshow. Um, Yeah, so based on that, I mean, and again, Stephen King, you can't go wrong. You know that I'm always going to get down to my knees and bow just because that's what I do. And like, and I am... (laughs) unapologetic about it um this whole thing i and i say this a little bit tongue-in-cheek but i don't know how this movie was not nominated for academy awards and oscars and i mean it's just for a werewolf tale this thing is absolutely fantastic the the adaptation from the novella novelette novel book graphic novel whatever the hell you want to call it um is pretty superb really um you know going back to the original material i mean and all things being equal the, the screenplay for this movie was written by stephen king mm-hmm. so i i don't know how you get any truer to the source material um than that there's really no way to do it um overall i mean come on we've got gary Busey in the mid 80s the height of the cocaine rage i know that stephen king was also at the height of his cocaine rage um You've got Corey Haim at the beginning of his acting career, sort of the beginning. I mean, Lucas was a little bit earlier than that, but the funny part is he was a really good actor when he was young. He was really good at too bad about the premature death and whatever, but yeah, shit happens. Um, But then also one of the fun parts for me, um, Everett McGill in this movie, um, we've talked about him before on Handle with Scare. And we talked about him during People Under the Stairs. He was the dad in People Under the Stairs. And it's funny if you if you listen back to that uh, episode and then more over to the movie, um, there's a lot of really similar lines when he's the priest versus being this, we'll call it the religious zealot that him and mommy were in this whole thing. Um, I, I was watching it again tonight, and I just... 
I was thinking about people under the stairs and I was watching the character and it was like, this is almost this. It's close to being the same character almost um, in the religious aspect, which is always kind of fun. The religious parts of anything always just fascinate the hell out of me. Um, But overall, Silver Bullet is a mid eighties horror movie that everybody should watch because it has something for everybody. Everybody will find something in it that they can connect to. It's a great watch. And if you don't have access to it, I rent it prime, whatever, do something to watch it because it is, um, it's a fucking fantastic movie. Yeah, I know we were, uh, watching it on, I want to say it was Max. Uh, who had it, but I know it is available on other, like, streaming channels as well. Um, so, like, a lot of, like, my earlier notes were more behind-the-scenes stuff in regards to Silver Bullet. Um, you know, initially, we had Don uh, Coscarelli of Phantasm fame, who was set to direct Silver Bullet, but left due to some creative differences that he had uh, with Dino De Laurentiis. Uh, and, you know, most of the film was shot in Burgaw, North Carolina, which, you know, if you're a fan of 90s horror movies, uh, you'll recognize a lot of things from I Know What You Did Last Summer uh, that was later used. Uh, and w- one of the more interesting parts that I, I was reading up on was that in the original screenplay draft for this movie, the werewolf was meant to, to speak, <laughs> like in werewolf form. <laughs> and, you know, when I saw that, I'm just like... Well, how the hell would that have worked? <laughs> well, but I think that's the Stephen King part, right? Mm-hmm. I think he he can take a, what I think has been a, a long-loved creature that everyone knows. Everyone, I mean, everyone knows the ins and outs. I think we discussed this already. If you don't know what a werewolf is, I mean, just come on. Mm-hmm. You're just, what are you doing with your life? But I think he also, it, with this story specifically, he does two things. Um, he He tries to make a werewolf more humanist. I mean, and, and and how do you do that more effectively than making the werewolf the town preacher, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how you do it. Um, but then also making our hero a paralyzed kid in a wheelchair, you know? I mean, so it's, it, it's, there's such dichotomies, if you think about them. I mean, they are the opposite ends of the good and the bad, right? Um, because the, the the bad is bad but portrayed as good and the good is good but portrayed as inept and so i having the werewolf talking and I, and I know what you're talking about i i think that was his way of of trying to make the werewolf more human and i'm glad they took it out because i i agree with you i don't think it would have worked very well but there's a couple of scenes in this movie specifically when we weren't that even werewolves have nightmares, which makes it more human to me, which was really awesome. Yeah, so in a way, like, they still were able to uh, have the same end result in this case. Um, Outside of that, though, you know, when it comes to the production of the movie, uh, you know, it began before the werewolf suit was even completed. Uh, So you had Dino De Laurentiis, who was never really happy with the, the end result. And, you know, looking back... Uh, you know, some of the criticisms that ha- has really spawned from the movie were, uh, you know, based on the werewolf suit looking more like a bear than a werewolf, which, you know, I, I understand. 
But I, I think with Silver Bullet in particular, you know, this is a movie when you compare it to a lot of the other werewolf flicks out there. Like, I don't really know a ton of people who are going to draw this one out of the hat, like within like the first three or four movies. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say it's like one of the big three for the werewolf genre. It's it's more times than not a very underrated film that just isn't really talked about all that much. So for us to be able to spotlight it a bit more on the podcast is always uh, a, a great thing, but you know, I, I can definitely see why people were honing in on the werewolf suit in particular. Because, like, let's be real, like there are other werewolf movies out there that have absolutely insane practical effects. Is Silver Bullet like among those? Probably not. But this is one of those movies that doesn't have to do everything uh, perfect. Like, it, it's not the flashiest movie out there. It's it, it's not the best with you know special effects, but it has really great acting. It has a really great pace. Uh, you know, some of the the humor stuff in regards to like some of the characters is more of its time, but it's just a really well crafted like drama piece, which uh, is really what makes it stand out across the board here. Well, certainly for me too. Um, being a Stephen King fan, the funny part of this whole thing is that so in this in the original novella, the the character was Uncle Al, um, and for me, so Uncle Al Al was my dad's name. So it was like I grew up with cousins saying, hey, Uncle Al, hey, Uncle Al. So that that resonated with me for the story. For the movie, it was Uncle Red. And growing up, I had an Uncle Rod. And Uncle Rod was the got married twice, never had any of his own kids, uh, tried to be the consummate bachelor. But he was also the guy that was like, you know, what we should do today. We should go shooting. I know you're nine. But that's okay, you know, and he was the guy that he literally for one of my birthdays sent me a box of blasting caps <laughs> from from the mine that he worked in and the trouble that I caused with those. So like I had an Uncle Red. So it's like for me, it was totally connectable. Um, at the same time, though, uh, this movie focuses so much on the family dynamic, especially the dynamic um, between the brother and sister. I mean, that is kind of what the movie's about right i mean between marty and jane i mean there's such a such a love-hate relationship that i think everybody that has a sibling can understand i mean it's it 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 totally makes sense i mean i i have a brother and i can understand how it is to be at ends with certain things and be on the same team with certain things and that's kind of what they do throughout this whole entire movie um but moreover, for, for Marty's character, when you are in this situation and you see what's happening, just having somebody believe you is like such a profound thing. And I think uh, with a lot of 80s movies, I, I think of um, movies like Night of the Comet, for example, um, definitely some stuff in Maximum Overdrive, but just having somebody on your side is so profound. And I think it's what it's what makes it a really, really good story. Just the story is good. I mean, maybe you're, you're right. Maybe the effects aren't perfect and whatever else, but the sort the story, it just draws you in so hard that a lot of it really doesn't matter. Yeah. But you also had uh, Stephen Kane insisting that, uh, for, you know, bulk of the movie that the werewolf was to be cloaked in shadow and, you know, not as visible as what we've been accustomed to seeing in these other werewolf features. Uh, and, 
Uh, you know, I, I I really enjoy watching Gary Busey in these movies because <laughs> more times than not, you 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 can be under the assumption that mo- his dialogue is going to be majority ad libbed, which was the case here. Uh, but of course, he had to get the blessing of Stephen Kane in this case. Um, you know, we also have the movie being set in Tarker's Mill, which uh, also makes an appearance in Under the Dome. Mm-hmm. Uh, Corey Haim would also uh, be in another Stephen King adaptation a year later on with uh, Stand By Me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to think uh, what else. Oh, like. Well, that wasn't Winter Corey Haim. That was Corey Feldman. Was it? You're, Did you're I have my notes? You're mixing I miss the Corey. Tor- There's too many Corys. This is the tale of two Corys. We <laughs> talked to, with the two Corys. I mean, and it's. But I mean, you go into their into their future, and between um, you have the movie License to Drive, and then you have the Lost Boys. Yeah, even there was a point where even I got the Corys mixed up, and the reality is, right now one's dead and one's not. So yeah. <laughs> that's how I tell them apart. <laughs> one's a rotting, stinking corpse, and the other one has had a lot of plastic surgery and is basically there anyway. So yeah, it's <laughs> no, I, 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 no, I totally get it. Um, and. With that whole thing and with the production of this movie, um, I was, you know, as I was doing my notes tonight, one of the really interesting but interesting in a dark light sort of things is that the director of uh, photography in this was Armando Nanuzzi. And he is, I don't want to call him famous, but he's known for another Stephen King movie, which was Maximum Overdrive. Um, and if you've never watched Maximum Overdrive, it's even Stephen King calls it a cocaine fueled nightmare. That's what he, that's that's exactly what he calls it. And the reality of that movie is there was a scene with a lawnmower that was supposed to start up and was supposed to chase after somebody. Armando Nanuzzi literally lost an eyeball to the production of that movie because of a wood splinter from this remote controlled lawnmower thing. And it ended up suing the production company and Stephen King for a whole bunch of money. Um, but it's such a, like, I've known this movie forever, but when I saw that Armando Nanuzzi was in it, I was like, oh my God. I mean, literally a year before Maximum Overdrive, he was making this movie and a year later, he lost an eyeball to the production of another Stephen King movie. I'm guessing he's probably not a huge super like Stephen King fan at this point, but I guess I wouldn't really blame him. Yeah. If he worked on another one, maybe he'd get hit in the other eye. Well, exactly. Yeah, you know, gotta balance it out. <laughs> Lost in the Dark by Armando Nanuzzi. Yeah, I, it's yeah, just. Uh, but again, I mean, looking at this movie and looking at the characters in it, I mean, Gary Busey, and I think he was really hitting the high point of his cocaine crazed. Just, I'm gonna ad lib everything throughout this entire movie, and if you don't like it, well, then fire me. I don't care. Um, you have our friend Everett McGill as Reverend Lowe, who we talked about before was in people under the stairs, which was awesome. Um, you have Terry O'Quinn in this movie as the sheriff who was our stepfather later, you know, the, who am I here guy? I mean, this has got so many ties to horror and so many of like the good, you know, early eighties, late eighties, maybe even early nineties horror that it's, it's hard to ignore this movie as, um, honestly just as really as good as it is and i think you made a good point about the special effects and the the werewolf looking more like a bear and i saw some of those comments and i i I did a little bit of looking and the only thing that i can come up with is that 
this was the mid 80s and the mid 80s was a big time for um the uh oh i just fucking mind farted what was the the bear from the forest that didn't want you to start fires was it <laughs> smoky <laughs> smoky yes yeah. exactly you know and only you can prevent forest fires and yes the werewolf looked like him minus the hat mm-hmm. i i mean i there's no getting around it um and there's some spots early in the movie where you, we see this werewolf and he's climbing up this rose trellis and the rose trellis is made out of like three quarter inch thick pieces of wood. There's no way in hell that thing would have ever held up under the weight. But you know what? It's the suspension of disbelief and I'm just enjoying this. So it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but yeah, if you would have given him a hat. Yeah, he definitely could have at the end and go, only you could prevent forest fires. He definitely could have done that. Missed opportunity, but maybe that's why Stephen King oh. wanted to hide him uh, in, you know, cloak and shadows all the time. So, you know, we didn't get a, a clear see. image. <laughs> I can see it. I can yeah. see it. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, outside of that, Silverbolt was also the only movie that Daniel uh, Atheist had ever directed. He would later go on to do a lot of successful uh, directing in regards to, like, TV. Um, and this was one of two Stephen King adaptations to come out in 1985, with the other being Cat's Eye, both of which King uh, wrote the screenplay for, uh, so adapting his own work in both cases. Um, but, you know, all in all, when the movie came out, wasn't uh, Light of the World on Fire, was considered to be a flop and only made uh, $5.4 million domestically on a $7 million budget. Not great numbers there by any means, uh, and at least... For from like Stephen King and werewolves in particular, we wouldn't see another werewolf until it in 1990 when Pennywise took, you know, the form of a werewolf. So very rare occurrence that we get to see it in uh, King's work as well. Well, yeah, but with the, with the it adaptation, I mean, that was, that was more of a general broad based fear thing. And that mm-hmm. was part of the brilliance of it is that it, it it just it transformed your fear into whatever it was that you were afraid of, um, which is still awesome. I mean, and for the for the furtherance of the of the it stories, it chapter one, great. It chapter two, crap. Don't let anyone tell you different. Um, anyway, but I, you know, for this one, um, I love how we have basically our heroine called our heroine his sister Jane sort of giving us the backdrop as we go through the movie, you know, and she talks about the killings and, and, and all the things that are happening. Um, I, this is a very Stephen King story. Even the movie, the movie is very Stephen King. And that's a lot of Stephen King movies don't come through as very Stephen King. I mean, let's take the Shawshank Redemption, for example. Mm-hmm. Almost uh, th- there's 1% of the earth knows that Stephen King wrote that, you know, they just they have no idea. This is a movie where this where Stephen King between the family dynamics, the drama, the brother sister fighting, everything comes through as him. But it also comes through in the sense that we have kids, which which he often uses. I mean, let's talk about it. But he he often uses kids as both the put upon and then the heroes of the story, Um, which for me as a lifelong Stephen King fan. You're never going to get me away from this movie. No one's ever going to convince me that this movie isn't spectacular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even though, like, you know, I'd only seen, like, bits and pieces or at least had a recollection of, like, a couple of the scenes, I had an absolute blast, uh, you know, getting to watch it from uh, start to finish. And one of the things that 
you know, I really appreciate it. It's like, this is a movie that always plays things pretty straight. You know, it is kind of, I mean, c- compared to like other movies of its time, I will say this one is maybe a little bit more uh, heavy in regards to dialogue. Because, uh, you know, it is essentially, you know, a drama. You know, we have a family. We got small town America here. Just happens to be, you know, there's a werewolf in it. Uh, and, you know, most of the humor does come from Uncle Red in this case with Gary Busey. Um, but, you know, the the premise in itself is really never played for uh, the laughs. Oh, so, no, the, the hmm? werewolf is never what's funny. Mm-hmm. It isn't. The werewolf is always the hardcore drama. Um, but again, you have a movie where while we have the kids that are the heroes, we we get a, a little bit into the movie where a kid becomes a victim. And that's still, I think, not something today that is widely embraced, where we can just and to have his kite with the big happy face and the splash with blood and you have the sheriff carrying it. And he's just he's just he's kind of doing his prayers as he's walking away. I mean, for somebody that's not that's not religious, I understand how profound that is, like and and how shocked you would be by it. Um, But I think it 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 makes it. it makes it more approachable and it makes it more day to day. Like as a person, when, when you see all these various things happening in the, in the people that are killed and then and later in the movie, the, the priest slash werewolf actually tries to justify his actions, which I think is honestly spectacular. It's like, I killed a drunk. I killed a woman who was going to commit suicide, you know? And it's like, and I save their souls from hell. And it's like, eh. To your point about characters and and how they let the dialogue do a lot of the story building and and a lot of the like the scene advancement to have it's it's rare that you have a movie that has one werewolf. That's very rare. There's one werewolf in this movie. And two, it's very rare that you get to hear them talk and actually try to justify their actions like this is why I did it. It makes sense to me. Can't you see it? Yeah, instead of just all the snarls and, you know, the back raking that it would normally, you know, entail uh, in this case. Um, but, you know, we, we also have a lot of narration going on here in in regards to Jane, uh, which, you know, I know it's like another one of those scenes which is kind of uh, polarizing for a lot of people in the movie. Um, but, you know, you kind of like need that that backdrop. Uh, but to your point in regards to like, uh, you know, kill it off of some of the kids in this case. Um, you know, I, re- I remember someone mentioning, like, well, why why did they never show, uh, you know, the boy's body after he got mauled? And it's just like, well, they just didn't have um, they didn't have that prop piece done. <laughs> uh, but like the the scene in the bar, uh, Owen's bar, which, you know, was named after uh, Stephen King's son in this case. There you go. Is one of like my favorite scenes in this movie because it perfectly draws the line and, you know, they, they talk about like, you know, injustices and, you know, like, and of course you, you kind of like have that mob mentality, but it's, it's not so far like, like hit in the head, like we've seen in other movies, like, you know, Halloween kills, for example. Um, but it was just a, a perfect seeing the reaction of everyone in the bar. And then later when we had like another like memorial type service and just seeing the look of the state in everyone's eyes was like such a priceless moment where it's just like, yeah, you're not, there is no talking down to anyone in this room. Like we are, we are all have like a clear conscience. Uh, and you know, we, we all have something to set out to do at this point. 
Uh, so to see like basically the entire town come together at that point uh, was definitely one of my favorite moments that we got to see here. Oh, well, definitely when they were, when they were in the bar and the one redneck and the sheriff's deputy are about to come to blows and then, and then Brady's father comes in and goes, has anyone seen my boy Brady? I mean, it, uh, super polarizing, but at the same time, super connective for the town. Cause that's when mm-hmm. the town is like, okay, you know what? It's, uh, it, you know, it's time to your point about the funerals and like how they keep replaying the funeral. I mean, like people in this town, they had to got, have gotten pretty sick of singing amazing grace after mm-hmm. a while. Right. Um, but I think to your point, it also brings the town completely together. And there's, there's one scene that like made me, made me laugh out loud to the point where I had to like take a step back and like compose myself. And that's the bear trap scene. Um, when the guy steps on a bear trap, they're walking through the woods. It's heavy fog that he, he steps on a bear trap and the other guy's like, okay, okay, we'll, we'll get to it. And he opens up the bear, and as he's slowly opening up the bear trap, somebody goes, hey, and he's like, what? And he lets it spring back on the guy. I don't know why, but for me, that made me literally laugh out loud, like, oh, my God. But so to your point about the way they use comedy in this movie, and the, but the comedy is never, it's never tied to the werewolf. The werewolf is always played off as serious and dramatic. And even in even when he has his little monologue on the bridge there, it's all just super, super serious. It's the fact that there's a werewolf is never funny. Mm-hmm. But yeah, definitely a lot of uh, good writing, a lot of strong performances. Uh, and, you know, just the use of private justice in that scene is just absolutely fantastic. Um, I, I also really liked a lot of the uh, the bantering that we had between Uncle Red and Marty's mother. Uh, after, you know, Marty would have to, you know, go up to bed, you know, because there's there's always like that mentality from uh, the mom character to like push Uncle Red away because, you know, he's always bringing booze into the house. You know, him and uh, Marty are basically gambling for baseball cards, as uh, you had mentioned to me, because I didn't pick that up right away because, you know, initially, like, you know, growing up, like whenever I would play poker with my uncle, we'd always be playing for money. <laughs> You know, it wasn't for baseball oh, yeah. cards. It was always yeah. for like loose change or, you know, whatever we we had on hand. And of course, yep. you know, it wouldn't be my money. <laughs> but that's completely besides the point. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I, I just I, I love the fact that, you know, you have Uncle Red, who is who is not only the comedy, but like he's he's also like trying to be a little bit of a father father figure for for Marty in this case. And whenever he uh, actually like reveals the silver bullet uh motorized car <laughs> or wheelchair to to marty and seeing like him take off and seeing him basically like popping a wheelie i'm just thinking the whole time like oh man this is this is just an awful idea and you're just waiting for him to like take a turn too sharp and just roll over but of course that doesn't happen but you know that that thought just makes you so anxious as that scene progresses the whole time well but i mean the uncle Right from when you meet him, he is he's looking at the mother like. Like, why do you. Why do you treat him like this? Mm -hmm. You know, he's capable, he's functional, he's going to find his own way, he's going to do that. So by me. Playing hard with him for baseball cards and no managers, by the way, never a manager, uh, He's 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 I think I think Uncle Red is the person that treats him the most human, mm-hmm. right? Just treats him like he's a person versus a crippled kid in a wheelchair. Um but then t- 
to what you said about the new silver bullet. I mean, and the new silver bullet is both rad and probably the loudest, most obnoxious thing that I've heard. <laughs> like, it, like, like given this to what is supposed to be like, a, I think what 11 year old kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and uncle red even says it. He's like, Oh, this kid's dead meat. <laughs> you know, he says it. Um, but I think that's I think that's how he shows his that's how he shows his love, you know, and he that's how he keeps treating him like he's a person. And it's not like, you know, I feel pity for you or I feel bad for you. It's just like, hey, I got this for you. It's like spit shine and shiny and just just go and live your life and enjoy it. You know, cause that's because that's how he got around, you know, and I don't think Red ever wanted him to lose that, you know, but I think that's the family part that we were talking about. I mean, this is. I hate to say it, almost a family-oriented, almost family-friendly story, mm-hmm. except for the you know the blood and the guts and then the the terracotta pot or terracotta pot war that the werewolf has in the greenhouse, which I still don't. There's a little piece of me that still doesn't understand that. <laughs> but the redneck got it with the floorboard, so it worked out in the end. <laughs> yeah. So uh, in in regards to the kills that we got to see uh, on screen, you know, we got some uh, decapitations. Of course, we got some maulins from the werewolf. Uh, we we have some impalement using some broken wood planks. Uh, we also have people getting thrown against walls, which is fantastic. Faces getting ripped open. People getting bludgeoned uh, with like bats, essentially. Uh, but, of course, you know, when we kind of, like, get to that pivotal moment when uh, Marty is fighting uh, Werewolf, you know, he gets shot in the eye. Which, uh, <laughs> which which I love because it's, like, the whole time it's just, like, all right. You know, we, we do the whole, like, uh, not wanting to be, like, the, the Hardy Boys type ordeal with, yes. <laughs> with Gary Busey. And it's just, like, well, it's not going to be that hard to deduct who, like, the main guy is. Like, there's only one werewolf in the town that, you know, Marty's telling you about. And it's a guy with a bad eye. Like, you're not really going to have to look all that hard to uh, to get to the bottom of this. Like, it's not a huge mystery at this point. Well, I think ultimately it's like the guy or the gal with the bad eye, right? Because they don't know at that point. I mean, and if you've never if you've never been a kid, which I think we've all been kids, so that sounds kind of stupid now that I say it. But if you've never had the person in your life that like gives you that clandestine bag of fireworks and is like, don't blow your fucking hands off. Like and that bridge scene when he's lighting fireworks and then just going bloop into the creek and then light that one honestly resonates with me so hard it's just fucking ridiculous so i love it but then when the werewolf comes after him and he hits him in the eye right in the fucking eye with that rocket you know and that was the rocket that uncle red was saying save this one till last mm-hmm. you know so i mean it's so it, it, it's so prophetic and just how he brings it all together but then the next day when he tells jane and he's like this is what i did this is what happened and she's like when she this is when she finally gets on board right and she's like well, okay, I'm going to go look. And she goes out and she's doing the collecting bottles and cans for, I think it's the MedQ drive that she's, but they have this, the way it's shot and the, and the way that they have all, all the townspeople and she's going house to house and they do these weird ways of hiding people's eyes behind opening doors and behind curtains and things like that until you can see their whole face. And she gets to the end of the day and she's fucking exhausted and she has to drop all this med cue stuff off and you drop it off at the reverend's house. Cause he's the guy. And it's like, and she finally, you know, she's dumping all this shit and they give you that kind of close in up shot. 
And he's like, oh, well, thanks for dropping that off, Jane. And, but you see that he has the eye patch. It's like, it's, it's so profound. And then when she also, she sees that bat, the peacemaker laying in the, in the pile of cans. And then he's like, oh, oh, but Jane, you're, you're trembling. Perhaps you should lie down or have a cold drink. And she's like, nope, I'm fucking out of here. Gotta go, <laughs> dude. Sorry. You know? And she tells Marty and then they tell Uncle Red. And they tell Uncle Red basically that they've been sending him kind of Unabomber-esque letters in the mail. <laughs> you know, the, the the clipped newsprint and whatever else. And mm-hmm. I know who you are and I know what you're doing. Why don't you just kill yourself? And another one of Uncle Red's great improv scenes. And he's like, so if I were to tell people that you're trying to get the local pastor to gargle broken glass, <laughs> it's like, I mean, but it's so, it's so small town good. It's so small town good that you just, you, you kind of got to love it. Yeah, and because it is a small town, you know, you think with any sort of uh, accident, obviously the word is going to hit the street at that point in, in time. And, you know, everyone's always hanging out at Owen's bar, uh, <laughs> you know, in this case too. So, you know, anytime anything is happening, you know, it's 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 going to be the talk of the town, and there's really no way around it uh, at that point. But I, I just love how you know initially it's just like he's going to blow it off. Obviously, he doesn't want to, uh, you know, buy into the story. I mean, hell, it's a reverend for God's sake. Like he can't possibly be the bad guy in this situation. Sure enough, of course, that is actually the case here. Um, but, you know, there, there's always going to be that sense uh, when it comes to kids in horror movies and it comes to storytelling where it's like, oh, you're just reading too many comic books, right? Your imagination is in, is getting the best of you. So you're, you're always going to have the mentality of kind of like blowing things out of proportion or just exaggerating the truth. Uh, so you're never going to have, like, the full-blown trust from, like, the adults in this case. Well, I think you're right, but I think that's what's awesome about Uncle Red is that, and I don't know if it's because it's Gary Busey and he's just loaded on coke and just riding the rails, or, I mean, because every scene you've seen Uncle Red in, he, almost every scene he has a bottle of wild turkey in his hand. (laughs) So it's like, well, so maybe that's what it takes. Maybe it takes nudging your train off the tracks just a half a step to be able to kind of like, you know, believe this stuff and see it because it seems like he's kind of starting to. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and they do this. There's like a scene where they're sitting in the station wagon in front of the church. And, you know, Uncle Red is like any guy that took a rocket in the eye would either be in the, you know, in the hospital or he'd be dead. He's like, he wouldn't be painting the thermometer in front of the church for the gift giving goals for the, you know, for the month or whatever. Um, but it is. This movie is is it, it does something. Uh, it, maybe maybe weird is not the right word, but how they take a kid and then towards the end two kids, and they basically subjugate the parents right out of it, right? And you just have this uncle that the mother hates, the father can't stand, um, but they make him their, you know. They're mighty oak. And again, I, I love that about this movie that Uncle Red is. He's a guy who's like, you know what? OK, fuck it. I'm going to believe you. I'm going to believe you. And let's kind of see what happens. And that it, this was definitely like mid 80s. Gary Busey was definitely starting to. Kind of kind of come off the rails, I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, but it, it's still so. 
is still so good because I think everybody has that member of their family that I think is that little bit of insane where it's like, if I went to you with this, you might believe me. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, <clears throat> I, I also love the fact that, you know, we when we do have some transformations, uh, you know, at one point, uh, you know, we, we see all, you know, the bodies in the caskets at the funeral. Then we see the transformation, uh, you know, before our eyes. And we we, we kind of like have that moment where, uh, you know, we, we have that scream asking God to like just let it end. And, you know, the, the use of religion in, in horror movies obviously has done to like different extents. Um, and in, in this case, you know, we, we basically had the, uh, the nightmare sequence, <laughs> which I honestly had completely forgotten about, uh, in, in this movie. <laughs> so like when it happens and, you know, you see like the, the referent basically waking up in cold sweats at that point, like, oh shit, like it, it just comes to show you that, um, you know, he, he, <laughs> To, to an extent, he was definitely losing the people in, in the town because, you know, they were starting to push back more. And, you know, they weren't trying to, like, confine so much in religion at that point, knowing that, like, you know, the talents people are basically getting picked off one by one. I think there's, like, at least eight or nine of the talents who ends up uh, biting the dust in this case. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the whole thing. I mean, and with him being sort of the town's moral compass, right? Um, to what you said, when they start going towards the vigilante justice, he, the, the Reverend Lowe is definitely out there going, no, don't, you know, no, don't. But I mean, the, the reality is you can see it from the movie perspective of like, yeah, please don't hunt me and kill me. Cause I wouldn't like that. Um, but at the same time, I think it takes these people that have been so borderline complacent and so comfortable for so long. And then as soon as something bad happens, it's like, this is what we resort to. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but then also, and I think I said it before too, I was, for me, it was very, and I'm going to use this word and it's going to sound stupid, but it was very comforting to me to know that a werewolf still has bad dreams. Mm -hmm. You know, there's something about that. That's just awesome. That a werewolf can wake up in cold sweats going, fuck. Okay. I'm awake. (laughs) Okay. Things are, things are okay. Um, because this movie, I mean, between that, then you have the scene pretty soon after that, where you have Marty, who's watching all the kids play baseball and his friends are talking to him, but you know, like what he's dreaming about. Mm. So it does a good job of, of, of playing the positive and negative, you know, because, you know, a werewolf's worst nightmare versus a paralyzed kid's best dream, you know? Um, but having, having all of that, this movie is so humanist. It's ridiculous. It really is ridiculous how humanist it is and how it's just, it just makes you want to be a person and it makes you want to root for the good guy because in this movie you really do. And to your point about religion, I mean, I think you and I have talked before. I think Stephen King hates religion. Mm-hmm. I think he just hates it. He, he, he doesn't go out of his way to mock it. I don't think he's a mocking kind of person, right? I think he just makes his disdain for it known. Um, and this is another one of those movies where it's like, I mean, he made the, he made the town priest a werewolf for Christ's sakes. I mean, if you don't, if, if that's not taking a shot at religion, I don't know what is. And if anyone ever asks you, like, how do you sleep at night? You know, you just point to this movie and be like, see, even werewolves have nightmares. And, you know, he just mauled a bunch of kids. (laughs) Well, exactly right. Exactly right. (laughs) And that's, 
I, but I think, you know, if you look at all of Stephen King's stories over the span of his work, um, and especially the movies where he did the, he did the screenplays for, he, he always features kids heavily, which I think probably from him is, is a childhood thing. And like I said before, I've been to a couple of different things where I've seen him be able to speak and he talks about his childhood and he takes a lot of his creative, um, ilk out of his childhood and the things that he saw and the things that happened and just growing up. And, but I love how he's not shy about it. You can be in one of his stories and you can be a kid and you might die. Mm -hmm. Sorry. You know, (laughs) that's just what's going to happen. And, but I think that's, what's great about it. And as a kid, that's what made it all relatable to me. Like, that's what made it scary. It's like, I could be a 10 year old kid. I might get offed, you know? And, most storytellers didn't do that. The kids were pretty much always safe, right? I mean, but he was—it was fair game on everybody, which was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because at the time it was always kind of an unspoken rule. Now, granted, uh, that has changed over the decades in you know in the genre, especially um, where it's not as uh, so black and white in this case, because um, we we do see it a lot more often than what we would in in the eighties. Um, but, but go, going back to like the whole, the, the firework sequence, you know, I, I just love the fact that, you know, due to the killings, you know, some of the, uh, some of the, the town's plans were kind of like thrown off a bit and Marty was like really upset over the fact that the fireworks show was, uh, getting yes. canceled outright. So it's just like, all right, you know, Uncle Red's going to hook you up. So, uh, you know, not only does he get, you know, this custom-built wheelchair, motorcycle, uh, the silver bullet, he also just gets a stack of fireworks on top of that, uh, just completely for himself, you know. And sure, it's not like, it is by no means a a showstopper type uh, of haul in regards to the fireworks, but as a kid, you really don't care. You just want to light shit up and blow it off, you know. So anything that he would have gotten from Uncle Red would have been more than enough to suffice. Oh, shit. As an 11-year-old kid, you didn't have a pack of firecrackers. You had 16 individual explosives. Mm-hmm. That's what you had. <laughs> so it totally makes sense. I mean, and, and, and let's be honest here. By the end of the movie, Uncle Red gives him a gun. So it's like, <laughs> I mean, so he's, 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 got, he's got the whole thing all the way. He's, uh, he's got my vote for best <laughs> uncle ever, short of my Uncle Rod, who was the best uncle ever. So, um, but yeah, I mean, but this... There's a lot of this movie, I think, if you're a young kid, you've got problems. I mean, obviously, Marty's in a wheelchair or whatever else. But he, the movie does a great job of, of showing you that he's taking it in stride. And the only people that feel bad for him is everybody else. Mm-hmm. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't actually feel bad for himself. He's just like, I mean, he, he, even you get to the very end of the movie, he's like, you're okay. And he's like, I think I have a problem. I can't feel my legs. Like he's making a fucking joke at the very, I mean, like it's just, so he's, he doesn't see himself as somehow insufficient, but I think he's grown tired of the rest of the world. See him as insufficient. He just wants to be himself and live his life and fly kites and do climb trees for Christ's sakes and do whatever else, you know? And he, he's got some great acrobatics off the side of the house, climbing down yet another trellis that I don't even want to talk about load bearing and all that. But, but he's such a great character. And I think for younger people these days i mean i I don't want to go quite so far as to call him a role model but he's pretty fucking close Mm -hmm. you know he's just i'm just gonna live and i'm gonna do it and i don't really give a fuck what the hell you guys think of me yeah i I think the one scene in particular that uh i always go back to in this movie that i'm like 
I don't know how it actually would have played out this way is, you know, when we have the chase scene between the Reverend and Marty, who is driving the silver bullet, you have a car going up against like this, like little motorcycle. How the hell he doesn't get thrown off the bridge <laughs> when he's like trying to ram him off the road? I I mentally had a lot of fun with this scene because I went back to the movie Bullet with Steve McQueen. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, this is just the bullet chasing. But these guys did it better, obviously. I know you're right. I mean, it's completely ridiculous. Um, but at the same time, that's like a, a early 80s sedan that handled like a dump truck and whatever else. And he's got this fucking I mean, I think it was kind of showcasing how rad the ride that Uncle Red there's a lot of alliteration in there. Um, but, like, just how awesome it was. Because, um, yeah, he had some scenes on the bridge where he almost tipped it over, and then he poked the front wheel through the bridge. But it also gets us back to the point where we finally have Uncle Red. He's looking at Silver Bullet, and he's like, because they're talking about the Reverend, and it's a Reverend, you have to help us. And he's like, this is just ridiculous. And he's like, wait a minute. It's like, what color is the Reverend's car? And Jane is like, it's blue. And then she points at the fender on Silver Bullet and it's like, it's this blue. So this kind of rad little trike thing that he's driving. It's funny how it almost becomes its own focal point in the movie. Mm. From the times that it's belching smoke out of the tail type from the times that it won't start when it should. Because it's I mean, for Christ's sakes, it's brand new. Um, but it also drives Uncle Red into a place of believing and it gets him to actually go and talk to the sheriff and be like, I know this sounds nuts, but, you know, and the sheriff's like, well, I'll check it out. And it does it, it, it does feel a little bit like the sheriff's at his, at his wits ends, too. But he also has you can see when he's in his office and he kind of just goes. Well, maybe, you know, and he goes to check it out. So, I mean, it it. The whole thing does a great job of just keeping the story moving, keeping people in that arc of, well, maybe I don't know, but like the possibility arc, we'll call it the possibility arc, like maybe, you know, and it just keeps the story moving. This movie for I think it's an hour and 35 minutes, the movie actually moves remarkably fast. Mm hmm for what it is for the number of people that die for the number of characters that we get introduced to and then later die i mean it really goes super fast so i mean it's not i mean there, there's not ever a time where you're so far back on your heels you can't recover to get to the next scene but it also the characters most of their development is so short that you don't really get to fall in love with anybody and be super heartbroken that they're dead so i mean that I think is a unique thing for horror movies. A lot of times horror movies will get you to know a character so much that you feel bad when they're dead. In this movie, it's like there's a shit ton of cannon fodder. And I sort of dig that. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you just need that in, uh, in your werewolf movies. Uh, you know, they, they all don't have the same level of a character development that we kind of got uh, last week uh, with dog soldiers. Um, but yeah, when, oh. when we got to, uh, you know, red and, you know, the sheriff having like that that discussion. I, I I always love the fact that, you know, it it always comes across as like this really crazy thing, you know. You're like, Oh yeah, you know, like, you know, gotta check check out the reverends, you know, like you know, Marty was telling me all these things and you know, I know it sounds crazy, you know, I didn't believe it at first either. 
But, you know, at that point, you know, uh, Lowe had also, or Sheriff Haler, uh, had also just been, you know, he, the entire community is basically pitted against him at that point, you know, because they're all wanting their, you know, private justice regardless. So it's also just kind of used as a way for him to, you know, win the people back <laughs> as well, uh, regardless of, you know, who is kind of like under the crosshairs at this point, uh, you know, with it being the reverend. Oh, definitely. He has that scene in the bar where he, you know, everyone's talking about wanting some vigilante justice. And he's like, no matter what you think, I'm law in this town and I'm mm-hmm. the one that says what goes. And the one redneck, I can't remember his name, but he's like, you couldn't catch a cold, <laughs> you know? So it's like he's lost the faith of the people. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know, in his position, I can see it being pretty easy to sort of cling to straws right. just to be able to get that back. And but again, it, with this narrative, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. And it 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 continues to feed the story just a little chunk of meat at a time, you know, and it's another, another one of the hundred reasons why this movie is fantastic. Yeah, I, I did find it interesting, though, that, you know, after that scene, when the sheriff goes to uh, Lowe's house, you know, it kind of seemed like Lowe was uh, like trying to keep himself locked inside of the garage. So he could restrain himself from, like, going on another killing spree. Uh, which is interesting because, like, he he was already trying to find justifications for why he was going out and killing people. But, you know, he, he still had somewhat of a moral compass at that point, regardless of, you know, what sort of mayhem he had already caused to not want to just make matters worse at that point. Uh, but, of course, you know, he... Of course, you know, that still ends up getting the better of him because, you know, Haller tries to arrest him only for, you know, Lowe to transform and bludgeon Haller to death with the baseball bat in the garage. Well, yeah, but I mean, that's the whole thing, though. I mean, and that's uh, like a linchpin of a lot of Stephen King stories is the moral ambiguity. And I think even in his stories, he gives the villains a place to have that moment where it's like, is what I'm doing right. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, but so he, I mean, it, a lot of people don't like Stephen King, which is just mind boggling to me. But at the same time, it's like, it, his stories are so, if you break them down to brass tacks, they're so true to life. And they're so, whether you're a good person or a bad person, you're always put into a position where you have a, to make a choice about your morality and whether you're going to do the right thing. So I think you're right there that he was definitely he had himself locked in the garage. He wanted to try to stay away. He tried to want to not kill at the same time. He was put in a position where it was him or me, mm-hmm. you know, and so that's that's totally what he did. And so in a lot of ways, it makes complete sense in under the guise of like a Stephen King told story. And again, he wrote the screenplay, so it makes total sense. Right. At that point, uh, you know, we had Marty and Jane convincing Red to uh, take the Silver Cross. Uh, this is when we have Marty's Silver Medallion coming into play, where they end up bringing it over to the gunsmith uh, to melt it down into a silver bullet. <laughs> Which, you know, again, you know, we, we don't have any novelty shop where, you know, they're selling them by, <laughs> you know, the carton or anything like that. Here we actually see the craftsmanship coming into play, which, you know, I really appreciate, you know, it's just like not some random find. No, we are actually going out of our way to get this individual bullet made. 
So, uh, yeah, you better not, like, fall asleep with a cigarette in your hand, accidentally burn yourself, and, you know, maybe fire the gun off, because then you're just gonna be shit out of luck at that point in time. Which, granted, uh, part of it happens, just, you know, the firearm didn't go off during the time. Uh, which, you know, was good for Red in, in this case, but uh, I can only imagine how things would have panned out had uh, that actually been the case there. Oh, well, God, yeah, it would have been the end of the movie because the end would have made no fucking sense but like when he goes to the gunsmith and even the gunsmith is like gonna kill a werewolf <laughs> i mean so it's like i mean so it's it's not subtle mm. but still they do such a great job with the melting of the silver in a big crucible getting it into the mold i mean they do so i mean all the things that you see here is what would happen if you were going to do that mm-hmm. so they found somebody somewhere that knew how to do this, and I'm guessing it might have been this fucking old guy somewhere in North Carolina, and he was like, do you know how to make a bullet? And he's like, well, of course I do. You know, and, but, and so it's so fantastic, and the bullets, the, the, the one bullet in the mold is so, as, as somebody who is a gun enthusiast, the bullet is so beautiful, and just to watch him press this thing and to load it and just to and even just to know that i mean if you if you don't know what a 44 mag is you've never seen a dirty harry movie right so i mean it's so perfect it's so perfect and it just as it comes down out of the press and it's just like the guy looks at it and he's like probably the nicest bit of work i've ever done i mean it's yeah it i'm sorry i love this movie if you don't love this movie you're just you fell and hit your head or something because it's, it's just fantastic yeah but just the one, and to your point, that later in the movie where, you know, the, the kids are hanging out with Uncle Red, and Uncle Red's falling asleep in the chair, and he's, his, his heater's burning down to the butt, you know? It, uh, the end of this movie is such a wild ride, and like, kind of like you said, like, Red gets thrown against a wall, the bullet gets dropped down into the grate, and Marty has to fish it out, and... This movie, it, it hasn't given you a lot of um, the transformation stuff, right? Like, it gave you a little bit in the garage with the sheriff, but not too much. Most of the time, our werewolf's already pretty much formed, and he's climbing trellises, or he's stalking train tracks, or he's, um, you know, killing expectant mothers to be in their bastard children. I mean, it's it's doing... All, but but you never see a transformation. The one big transformation this movie gives you is the priest transforming back into a human after he's dead. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think is a pretty profound thing for a werewolf movie. You know, to not give you this super long drawn out. We talked about it before with the with the howling with the reverse hair pulling and to do all that. But the big transformation scene is somebody going back to being human. I mean, and that's not something that werewolf movies do, typically. Mm-hmm. That is true. And, uh, of course, you know, to, to really tie everything together, uh, when they do actually use a silver bullet, uh, you know, they shoot the werewolf in the opposite eye, not the one that was already heard earlier in the movie, <laughs> which is just <laughs> makes it that much better. <laughs> Uh, and that's when we see, uh, you know, low turning back into a human at that point in time. Uh, and of course, you know, we have the very hallmark moments with Marty and Jane, uh, saying that they love each other, you know, they, they embrace one another. Uh, and you know, we kind of like have like the exit, uh, you know, narration being done by Jane again. Uh, 
saying, you know, she hadn't always been able to, you know, say it, but, you know, like, uh, you know, she was able to say how much, you know, she loved, uh, you know, Marty from that point on. Um, but yeah, just the, just the small detail that it wasn't the same eye to me is just a cherry on the top, <laughs> you know, like, because they oh, easily yeah. could have just yeah. done the same thing. But, you know, obviously it's going to be a one shot kill in this case because this is a silver, silver bullet, but it's just more for. You know, it's like, all right, you know, we already hit this guy once. Where, where are we going to hit him again? I know. Let's just hit him in the other eye, you know, because that, well, that that seemed to work out fairly well the first time. But this is this is a second tap. Well, yeah, no, it's kind of the fuck you and fuck you. That's really <laughs> what it is. And but that but I think that's what makes it so brilliant, too. When you when you have this this priest who is our our town serial killer and for all the people that have hunted him and done whatever else, it's two local kids in town that know who he is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the sheriff's department, much as I love Terry O'Quinn, the sheriff's department has proved pretty ineffective. Our vigilante mob has proved really ineffective. I mean, they get eaten by the dozens out in the fog. Um, it's these two kids that are going to bring this shit home. And, I mean, if they're going to, to your point, if they're going to do it, it's like, well, you know, we already got your one eye. Why not take the other one? I mean, just to just to get the point home, you know. But again, that transformation in the end after he's shot is. Is something that I really hang on to as as somebody who likes, we'll call it a it's a it's a practical effect sort of semi. There's definitely some overlays in there. You can see them, but who cares? Whatever. But to focus on the big transformation of the movie be a reverse transformation. That's really sweet. You know, just the I'm dead, but guess what? I'm also a human again. So you can probably just pitch me in the ground and I'll be okay. Absolutely. I just wonder if that dog goes to heaven. I don't know if werewolves are uh, cornered into that category or not. I don't think that dog goes to heaven. (laughs) Okay. Well, well, he's a priest. Okay. That likes children. No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with no. I'm just gonna go with no. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure. You, I'm not sure even the Pope can sell that one. So. Yeah, probably, probably not. <laughs> um. So, so outside of that, another thing I had in my notes is, um, you know, when we had the scene where the werewolf kills the woman in in the bedroom, um, I I really liked the editing in that scene in particular because it does a really good job at. Uh, you know, trying to, like, convey just how vicious of an attack this is without actually showing a lot of the things that is happening in the scene. Basically, what we got is, like, a lot of quick edits. You know, we were getting close-ups. You hear a lot of, like, um, like the claw and, like, the sound of the impact that's being made uh, there. So, you know, it's kind of reminiscent of, like, the shower scene in Psycho, I guess, would be, like, the closest thing to uh, compare it to in just the way that it's kind of, like, laid out. So it, it just shows you, like, you know, whether something is being displayed on screen or not, like, you don't always have to show every little detail in order to, like, really hone your point across. And, like, that scene in particular in this movie is definitely, like, the standout moment, uh, you know, at least in this regard. Oh, definitely. Um, just with with her being upstairs and contemplating suicide, and, you know, she's pouring her bottle of pills out, and she's having her own, her own inner dialogue, her own uh, interrogative about... You know, suicides go to hell, but I don't even care. And and but then to have the mother downstairs playing the piano and the screaming upstairs starts. And there were two things that I thought were awesome. Um, well, that one was awesome in a bad way. One was awesome in a good way. 
the the awesome in a bad way was the chandelier above the stairs swinging. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I, I'm pretty sure that werewolf didn't create an earthquake, but I could be wrong. Um, but then the mother rooting through the drawers looking for a gun and then coming into the room, flipping the light switch on, and she just drops it. And then you have her flopped out. And it was not a guts everywhere, whatever else. Because you saw her, you know, she got scratched across the back. She was doing all these other things. But it didn't take the gore to an unnecessary level. Mm-hmm. She was on the bed. She was dead. There was blood. Like, I get it. And it, but it was it was solid. It was solidly done, you know. So, no, I think you're right when it comes to that scene. I mean, it was probably like attack wise. I think it was the best scene in the movie. Mm-hmm. There wasn't anything that was, you know, even closely comparable. Why they picked that character and her situation. Um, because she was the one that had the was seeing the guy on the side and he was like, yeah, it might be your oven, but it's not my bun, baby. Mm-hmm. Like and like just and and then she has that picture of him on her nightstand while she's doing that. It was I, I, when it comes to like the that situation, it, it felt super relatable. But then like her death was not so over the top that like it puts you out of it. So like it, it made. The rose trellis thing still bugs me because I don't think that werewolf could have climbed that rose trellis. <laughs> but that's just me. That's just I, I don't ever be an engineer. It makes you overthink shit. <laughs> um, but um, still, I mean, her her death. If you look at like. So you had the train guy who got his head cut off, right? And, mm-hmm. Like and with one swap, but they blame that on a train. You had the redneck guy in his. um greenhouse but he got the floorboard through the chest and then he died you had the kid at the playground which they never showed you know they just was kind of and then all the vigilante group like in the fog and they just kind of went underneath the fog and they were just gone you know so it was the one that they really put a lot of effort into and they really wanted to show you something but without being unnecessarily what's the word I don't want to use the word graphic, but they didn't make it detailed to the point of where you thought about it, but they made it fun enough and um, energy filled enough where it was like, yeah, this werewolf came in and and, and he messed this lady up and he messed her up bad. So, yeah, I think good call. That probably was the best kill in the movie. Yeah, And it's not like the bedroom was like really um, like overturned either like sure we had a couple of uh like pictures or paintings in the bedroom that were you know a little tilted but like there wasn't bloodshed on the walls or like even on like the 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 backstand of like the bed it was just all over the uh basically like uh the covers essentially and she was you know just sprawled back with her head hanging uh back off the side of the bed uh, and, you know, there's like maybe just like a couple of pieces of furniture that were overturned. So like it wasn't like the typical like blood splatter that we're accustomed to seeing it when it comes to like one of these death type rooms. Uh, but outside of that, you know, when we get to like the bloody kites in particular, like that to me is probably the most striking visual out of the whole movie. And, you know, when you get to that scene, it's just like you're you're looking at like the the blood pattern or the blood spray that we got on there. I thought it was really interesting too, at least the detail wise that it was the the left eye that was covered in blood and like all like the entire mouth area of the smiley face in this case. So it's like the same eye that the the, the reverend gets shot in with the firework later in the movie. Oh, very very prophetic, right? Yeah. 
So for our our lady, the only time that they had what I would call a splatter scene was when she was first attacked, but the blood splattered all over the picture of the boyfriend. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was really awesome. Um, Yeah. And and to your point about the the effect or the whatever they were going to use, not being ready for um, Marty's friend Brady being killed. um, There's something about it that actually made it work better, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, because I don't know what they would have shown at that point to like shock us right because i i don't think this movie ever set out to like shock us i think the the killing of the woman was probably the most shocking scene in the in the whole entire thing the the yellow kite with the blood all over it and then the one eye being covered was again very prophetic but not not shocking not mm-hmm. shocking exactly it was more telling us what was happening and then but going from there i mean honestly if you want to go for shocking i i honestly the redneck getting the floorboard and the guts after all of his terracotta pots broke like i'm a gardener too i felt bad for those terracotta pots man i did like why why break all these terracotta pots it's like i could i could have used that shit um and even going into our vigilante scene the vigilante scene i mean it's it's the Killing of the town bar, right? I mean, that's what we're going to do. We're just going to kill everybody who's in the bar. Fuck mm-hmm. it. It doesn't matter. Um, so I think that, it, yeah, what you're saying is a, a lot of it is so right. and But then a lot of it is also, and I'm going to go back to the, the sort of reverse transformation thing. Mm-hmm. And... Like, I, like how he spent this entire movie, the story spent the entire movie basically attacking the hypocrisy of a religion right that's what it did i mean it was attacking the hypocrisy of religion like i'm your i'm your guiding light and whatever else and by the way i'm killing your children at night so yeah, just take that for what it's worth um but there was a certain level of watching the reverend become human again that was almost um casting aside the evil and like getting him back to a place where it's like the the ground has been leveled again you know and it's like here's where we're all at i mean there's again i i love this movie i'm always gonna love it as a kid it spoke to me there are a thousand different reasons why it spoke to me um i'm glad you finally got to watch it all the way through and honestly i'm glad that you like picked out things that were different than i picked out Mm -hmm. for like the awesome scene because like i get it but it maybe wasn't the most awesome scene to me. I mean, for me, one of the most awesome scenes is the bridge and the fireworks because I get that as a kid. Um, the When he goes into his sister's room after him and his friend fucked with her with the snake and he's offering to pay for her pantyhose, um, there's a piece of that that I get to from me growing up. So, like, like it spoke to me, too. Um, it's... I would love to be a person that got to watch this movie for the first time and just to see what that person feels, mm-hmm. because I'm, I'm guessing it would be different than what I felt. But I think that's what's awesome about this movie is there are so many movies now these days that don't make you feel anything. They just entertain you. And this is a movie that's going to make you feel something. Absolutely. I know just like in regards to, uh, you know, paying back for the pantyhose, like if that was my sister, there was no way she would have me change back. <laughs> you know, <laughs> not not in not in this case. Absolutely not. 
Uh, but, you know, that was also the person who would, like, eat all the white chocolate in the fridge and uh, basically shove it under my bed to frame me. But, you know, totally besides the point. <laughs> oh, but is it? Oh, but is it? it? It sounds like a thing, and you might want to talk to your local priest about that. <laughs> ah, nah. No, I'm good at that front. Uh, but yeah, so all in all, really enjoyable movie. It's it's not the flashiest thing, but, you know, there's still a lot of things that are probably going to ring true for a lot of people's uh, childhoods that they can relate to within this movie. And uh, not the best practical effects, but there is just so much good drama in this movie that, like, really stands out. And you can't go wrong with the ad-libbed comedy coming from Gary Busey either. Oh, absolutely not. When Because he, he was clearly... It's funny, I was looking at Gary Busey and then his son Jake Busey mm-hmm. and then um, Everett McGill. And Everett McGill right now looks like Jake Busey did 25 years ago. It's really weird. <laughs> um, well, just Google it, find some images. It's kind of funny if you want to laugh. Just do that. Um, but no, again, I mean, people that are perfect for their role... I mean, and, and, and who casts... Who casts a hero in a movie or even in a story as a paralyzed kid in a wheelchair? Mm-hmm. Nobody. Nobody. Right? Um, who makes, you know, the devilish werewolf the town priest? Now, if he was the town vampire, that actually makes a little more sense, but not by much. And the alcoholic uncle is, he's the support cast. He's the, you know what? Okay, I believe you. Here's some fireworks. Here's a sweet wheelchair and here's a gun. Do your worst. You know, it, it's it's fucking fantastic. Um, but I also think it's a incredibly good metaphor for life because we all have those people in our life that we're like, my uncle or my aunt so-and-so would do that. Mm-hmm. Like, I get it, you know. Yeah, and when we get to, like, the final moments, too, like, when they are all <clears throat> staked out, like, in the in the family room waiting for the reverend to, like, actually appear. Now, you do have, like, that moment where it's like, all right, he's not coming. You know, you guys need to get to bed. And that's, of course, uh, you know, when Jane sees the werewolf, you know, through the window uh, initially. So it's like, all right, now we're actually, you know, really starting to move here. And then, you know, not too long after that is, you know, when he, you know, burp. You know, barges through at, at that point in time. But I, I love the fact that it was just never uh, um, like an instance of, you know, Uncle Red at that point, just not, uh, you know, believing them anymore. You know, he was so good to sit in the living room with the gun in hand for as long as it took, you know, because, uh, you know, he'd even like shied the, the mother away to like a little like getaway that he... Uh, allegedly one, which didn't actually, uh, was not the case. He just wanted to get her, you know, out of sight, basically, which was fantastic. I, I love the fact that they did that, too, because it's like, well, how else are you going to write them off to, like, not be involved, you know, in this particular scene? Well, how do you, yeah, how do you take the family out of the family drama, mm-hmm. right? And you, you give them a free trip to Bermuda or whatever <laughs> it was that they did, which is fantastic, too. But, like... I think, and again, this goes back to my childhood, but for the very end of this, when the TV is on and the American flag comes up and then it goes to static, there was a time, ladies and gentlemen, people. <laughs> he, you may not uh, know this. <laughs> that TV actually stopped. It stopped at like midnight. It stopped. I mean, and I know that's hard to believe, but it actually did. 
Um, like, so for me, like that was a, like, so being, being a horror nerd, right? Mm -hmm. Midnight is usually where your horror nerddom had to stop because there was nothing else to watch. If you got super lucky, there was one odd channel that had some late night horror fest going on and you could watch it, you know? And that's where I lived. I lived in that 12 a.m. to 2 a.m. window of what are they going to show me and how pissed would my parents be if they knew I was watching this. So it's absolutely great. But, I mean, the, the Uncle Red character, I think, I honestly think, is he's supposed to be that linchpin between our logic and our creativity. He's, he's, the, he's the guy that says... You probably shouldn't, but what if we did? You know, and and bringing that all together in this movie, and then on top of it, having the doubting sister, having you know, having a kid who's a paraplegic. I mean, this is a movie that tells you if it tells you nothing else that anything is fucking possible, anything. So, if you have a dream, do it. If you have a doubt, ignore it. And um, if you have a will, there's a fucking way. So, do it. Absolutely. So um, looking ahead, I know we are wrapping up our Selenophobia deep dive with uh, Werewolves Within, uh, which is one of the more recent releases, I would say, at least for um, werewolf movies out there, uh, which is based on a video game, uh, also has uh, a lot of like whodunit aspects to it as well. So it's going to be very unique uh, in regards to, you know, the other films that we had selected for this phobia. Uh, it also has the AT&T girl, who is uh, one of the lead actresses in this movie, which, uh, you know, I, I already mentioned this yesterday when we were watching Silver Bullets. Uh, I remember when we initially watched this, when it hit video on demand, and it was basically just us for like an hour and a half just fawning over the brunette the entire time, and respectively so, because uh, there's a lot there. <laughs> um, I don't think there's that's going to change uh, when we watch it on, on Tuesday this next week. <laughs> Um, but Werewolves Within was definitely one of those movies that surprised the hell out of me. Because anytime you think of a video game adaptation, at least for me, my expectations going in are always super low. There have been a lot of just god-awful video game adaptations over the years, and really only like three or four that like really stand out, and some of them you know, might not always be for the best reason. Sure, there are adaptations out there that are more true to the source material that uh, maybe aren't the best movie, but they do enough to, like, draw you into the universe or the game where you can forgive a lot of things that happen. Like Mortal Kombat, for example. Prime, prime example of that right there. Was it the best movie? No. But it is fantastic 90s cinema, and it really captures a lot of the elements of the game, so, you know, you can forgive a lot of the other things around it. Now, the last Mortal Kombat movie, not so much. You know, I don't want to see us introducing someone specifically for the movie that has nothing to do with the lineage of Mortal Kombat. Uh, when we have, like, this entire... There's so many characters that they could have pulled in, and they're like, nope, not gonna do that. But uh, Werewolves Within, absolutely fantastic. We'll dive into that one next week. And, of course, we'll be watching it on Twisted Tuesday uh, next Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. Pacific time. Yeah, Werewolves Within, um, surprising, super fun ride. I'm I'm looking forward to watching it again with the crew. And then uh, 
giving her a chat up and yeah, it makes me want to go out and buy a pair of really big cell phones. So, <laughs> And uh, in July, just as a reminder, I am planning on doing Christmas in July again. Um, I, I'm i waiting to see the stream releases for the month, because uh, that's honestly going to be the trickiest thing in regards to, like, finding stuff to watch on the Tuesdays for, for that month. Um, so I, I'm hoping I'll have that information here within the next week so I can kind of, like, start to map it out and, you know, stream some additional titles outside of the Tuesday nights uh for that but you know what i i had such a good time doing it last year and i know i was like i'm trying to remember how many nights i was streaming it was probably at least four nights a week when i did it last year which uh honestly was a bit much because we were we you know we were still doing double features but there was just so much to offer at the time that i'm just like well i kind of have to (laughs) so like i felt i felt more obligated at that point just because of how good like the catalog was at the time uh, but I'll have more information on Christmas in July here, uh, hopefully within the next week for you guys, and I'll tweet out all the details on that front. But of course, all of that will be streamed here on Kick as well. Uh, but anything else, Grind, in regards to uh, Silver Bullet that you want to bring up before we close out the show for tonight? Uh, it's awesome. Go watch it. Be a kid again. And uh, just hope that you have an uncle that's cool enough to give you a handgun. <laughs> Absolutely. So with that being said, guys, thank you for joining us here tonight on Handle with Scare. This has been episode number 116, discussing the Silver Bullet release in 1985. And uh, we will see you guys back on Tuesday for Twisted Tuesday and Werewolves Within. And uh, if not, then we hope to see you for our live show next Wednesday. You guys take care and have a good night.